Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Hi, ladies, and welcome back to the Story Night Podcast. Tonight, we have a very unique and special throwback episode because this story comes from a very special lady who is no longer with us. Her name is Kenan, and I had the joy of getting to know her really just a little bit over some emails. And just in those few bits of correspondence, I could tell what an incredible lady, what an incredible friend and mentor she was. And we have the treasure of her story that she gave at a live event in Santa Barbara in 2008. Stay tuned to the end of her story because I have a special guest with me to talk a little bit about Kenan's life. And you've actually met this lady before. This is Bonnie, and Bonnie is the founder of the Story Night Ministry. Um, you probably heard her on episode one. And actually, you'll get to hear Bonnie in 2008 introducing Kenan. So it's just a perfect fit that she gets to join us again at the end. So let's tune in now to hear Kenan's story from 2008. My name is Bonnie, and my history with Kenan goes back probably 17-ish years, probably before then, but um, 17 years ago, I got to know Kenan through a home group that we were in together, and uh, it was a season in both our lives where we were both going through a lot of transition, but she can tell you more about that. There are a couple things that are just impossible to do. One is to tell your life story in 30, 35 minutes. The other impossible thing is to introduce someone like Kenan. And I am going to try and sum it up in three words, which is impossible. That's the third impossible thing. But if I had to sum up Kenan in three words, because we're here to hear her and not me, I would say grace. Because when you have suffered anything in life, you will receive from other people the whole gamut of comments and um, encouragements. And no matter what stupid things may come out of people's mouths, Kenan has the ability and always has had the ability, as long as I've known her, to make you feel like the most important person in the world. So grace, joy is the other one. And no matter what her circumstances have been, she has found the thing to be thankful for. And has shared that with the people around her. And then the the last word I would say is others. One of the things that when Kenan went through this last uh, round of treatment, I got to take her to a chemo appointment. And I stepped into this other world. And I just want to tell you that Kenan was queen of that world. (laughs) And just going through an encouragement to everyone in that place. And at the end of that day, I told her, I'm, I told her, you have given me an amazing gift to be here with you. And she didn't brush it off. She said, I know. (laughs) I said, I feel like you asked me to be a bridesmaid in your wedding. I mean, that's how amazing that day was. Because she knows how to give glory to the one who has brought her through her life from beginning to end, and or beginning to now, and she has just been an encourager of so many others. Anyone who tried to help her ended up with her full attention, 
and ended up walking out encouraged. So she can fill in the many, many blanks in there. I encourage you to get to know Kenan because uh, there's a lot to her. So I'm going to pray for us and for Kenan right now, and then she's going to come and talk to us. God, we, we acknowledge you as a Heavenly Father who knows Kenan and who has known her from the time before her birth. You've carried her through a lot, and she has pointed to you in every situation with praise and thanks at times when the rest of us might be complaining. And we uh, give you thanks for her story, what we learn about you from it. So bless the rest of our evening together. Amen. I'm checking to see if I'm on. Can you hear me? Oh, good. What a fun surprise. It worked. (laughs) I am absolutely privileged to be here with you this evening. And what a fun group of women. I love hearing all the laughter and all the joy. And first of all, I'd like to say that items that Bonnie decided to point out about me are things that came straight from God. They are not anything that's about me. They're about him. So I just want to say thank you first to the people who spent many of those years walking alongside me during those different cancer battles and during some really hard times in life. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being faithful friends. Some of these stories may ring a bell to you, but a lot of the things I'm going to share are a bit more behind the scenes. So hopefully it will be a new story as well. And I want to thank you to those who have come this evening who I don't even know your name or I've met you for the first time tonight. Thank you for taking time out of your night to be here. And really, unbeknownst to you, you've been prayed for. I truly believe that every person that's in this room tonight is here for a reason. And whether somebody pulled you along and drug you out the door or whether you were just curious, I'm glad you're here. And I hope that this time will be a time, not just for you to listen to my story, but to listen to God whispering into your heart what he wants to say to you. And then thirdly, I'd also like to dedicate this time to, I'm just going to list off a few names of precious souls who died very young of cancer. And it's my great honor to be here, to be alive, and to have the chance to speak about my life. And so I'm remembering them right now. Perrin Witt, age 8. Alyssa Smelly, age 15. Matt Steele, age 35. Paula Adamson, age 37. Jerry Anderson, age 41. And they're with us here tonight in spirit. And they all lived courageous lives. And so I just want to start out by acknowledging them and honoring them. And it's kind of tricky, as Bonnie said, to tell your story in 30 minutes. So I'm going to speed up. No. (laughs) I'm actually going to kind of tell it through pictures. And it said that a picture is worth a thousand words. And I promise that each of the pictures I tell you will not be a thousand words. But um, I, I want to start out with the first picture that comes to mind is my childhood. 
And I was born to two very high-achieving individuals who were strong and self-sufficient and college graduates. And my dad was a working, he was serving our country in Vietnam, actually, when I was born. And my mom had my sister and then had me and then my sister 13 months later. So she had her hands full by herself with my dad in Vietnam. And both my parents grew up in Christian families, which was wonderful. There was the, the painting of Jesus knocking on the door of your heart above the hearth of both of my grand, grandmother's homes. They met at a Bible study. And so you would have thought that I would be raised to know something about God. But when I was very young, both my parents took an interest in different things. My mom started getting really interested in science. It just was fascinating to her. And she decided that she was really going to pursue that. And I grew up and just totally took that. I mean, that's just the way it was. And anybody who believed, you know, God created the world, that was kind of for people who didn't really, you know, have it all together. So (laughs) my dad was busy climbing the corporate ladder. And my mom taught us a lot of things and tried to help us become really self-sufficient. We learned how to do our laundry when we were in third grade. We were responsible for it from then on out. And um, that was kind of a picture of my childhood. I like to put it in a frame called Survival of the Fittest. (laughs) And (laughs) really, I learned a lot through my childhood, and I'm very grateful for my parents. But one thing that didn't survive that wasn't fit enough was my parents' marriage. And they divorced when I was 14. So the next picture I come to is the picture of my teen years. And I would say that that's in a frame of searching and seeking. And I spent a lot of time trying to figure out where I was going to go with my life now that I kind of had free reign of of my direction. And I tried a number of things. I went to positive thinking seminars that my mom sent me to. Yeah, when you're green, you grow. When you're ripe, you rot. That was one of our phrases. And we just kind of like think of these things and memorize things off little cards about how great we were and how we were going to visualize being a winner. So that's I did a lot of that. And, and then um, the next thing I tried was a lot of control of my life and my environment and myself. And I grew up with a very nutrition-oriented family, but I kind of took that to the extreme. And I fought anorexia for several years. And the next thing I tried was just plain old high school partying. I just thought, well, none of the rest is working. I should just drink a beer and have some fun. So I tried that for a while. And in my high school years, a wonderful young couple moved to my hometown of Boise, Idaho. And the woman from that couple is sitting right here in front of me, Jeannie Parsons. And they got to know some people that my sister was friends with at school. And they were looking for a big living room to hold their Young Life Clubs. And so my sister came to my dad and said, what do you think about having this this youth group kind of thing come and meet in our living room? And my dad thought about it, asked some more questions. He thought, you know, that sounds pretty good, pretty wholesome. I, on the other hand, was in the background going, no, 
It sounds like, like a cult or something. No. But despite my protests, yes, indeed, we had Young Life, and God came into my living room once a week. And I sat in the back and watched these amazing people love teenagers in a way that I had never seen before and be interested in their lives and truly want the best for them. And I was very taken by that. I was very interested, but I was still kind of following after my mom's skeptical scientific side. And I just kind of held back for a while until my junior year of high school. I got the opportunity to go to Japan as an exchange student. And I thought, great, an adventure. This will be really fun. So I'm packing up the night before I'm going to Japan, and my sister is watching The Exorcist on TV. And it really freaked me out. So (laughs) I took a Bible that my Young Life leaders had given me and dug around underneath the stairwell and found my dad's old Naval Academy Bible, took them both, threw them in my suitcase for protection or something, and went off to Japan. Little did I know that God was actually taking me away for a three-month conversation with him. I couldn't read the signs. I couldn't read the magazines. I couldn't speak to the people. I don't know what I thought I was doing at 17, (laughs) going to a foreign country. But um, I read my Bible a lot. And believe it or not, at 17, reading a Bible all by myself, I realized, wow, this God that my parents were kind of dismissing, but I knew that my grandmother were both praying for me um, about and praying that that God would come and meet me. He did. He met me through the word of God. And as I read it, I realized it wasn't just a historical book. It wasn't just something far in the distance, a God who maybe made the world and then let it go. This was, I was amazed that a man would come to the earth. God would come in the form of a man. And he would put on a fleshly body and walk around and endure all the struggles and hardships that we face in life. And not only that, then he would die for me so that there could be a bridge between me and my insufficiencies and a holy and loving God. And I thought, oh, no, I'm going to become a Christian. (laughs) (laughs) My mom is going to just flip her lid. I can't can't believe it. But um, I thought, you know, I can either just try this, and if it's just another passing phase like the positive thinking and the partying, it'll just go away. But if this is real and I pass this up, I could be missing out on the most important thing in life. So I decided to become a Christian. And I came home and told my mom, and she said, that's nice, honey. I'm sure it'll pass. (laughs) But it didn't, and I've been following Jesus ever since. As my new life was coming along in Christ, my grandmother, who had been praying for me for years and years, was fighting breast cancer that had metastasized to her bone. And so as my life was renewing her life was fading and I felt that a baton was passed to me at that point 
and um, I decided that I should go to some kind of a college where they knew about God, and I should have some kind of undergirding of something intellectual behind this leap of faith that I had made. And I decided to go to Westmont College. And um, as I was getting ready to leave, I remember coming in to talk to my grandmother one day, and she was um, just quietly crying on the phone, talking with a friend. And she was just at the at her wit's end, and she just said, I just don't understand. I've been good my whole life. I've tried to do everything that God's called me to do. I don't understand why it's turning out this way. And at that moment, I wondered how my new faith would work out as challenges came along in my own life. So off I went to Westmont. She passed away that summer. And I found this incredible family (laughs) that I had no idea there were so many fun young people that loved life, and they also loved God. And they were all at this college called Westmont. And I had the best time. I was just on cloud nine for the first three years. I was just involved in everything. I was so excited and so thankful to be there. And then the summer before my junior year at Westmont, I was exchanging back rubs with a friend like you do in college. And we found a lump in my neck. And I went to a doctor, and he said, oh, it's probably mono. It's, you know, in your lymph nodes. And so I took some antibiotics, and they didn't, they didn't seem to do anything. All the while, I was thinking, oh, I have to drop out of so many activities if I have mono. It's going to be such a drag. But my mom, when the antibiotics didn't work, being the scientist that she was, really felt that I should go see a hematologist, a blood doctor, and just follow up, see what, what he thought. So I went in with a, a friend's mother, actually. I was staying out of state that summer. And she was a nurse, and she came with me. And the doctor did a quick exam, and he came back in and very abruptly sat down and said, well, I'm about 99% sure that you have cancer. You have Hodgkin's disease. It's cancer of the lymph system. And we'll need to begin treatments right away. We walked out and got in the elevator, and my friend just started bawling. And I had no idea what Hodgkin's was. I kind of mixed it up in my head with Parkinson's. So I thought, I'm really young to have Parkinson's. And... (laughs) I guess I'm going to start shaking and getting all those side effects, but that seems odd. And she explained to me what Hodgkin's was, and from her perspective as a nurse at that time period, did not have very good outcome. So she was really shocked that he just came out and told me. But I began the treatments, which they decided after some staging where they go into your abdomen and test some different parts of your organs to see how far the cancer spread. They decided that they would do radiation. And in fact, they would tuck my ovaries behind some of my other organs, try and save my fertility, and do some great things that they had planned. And during that surgery, the night before, I got this terrible stomach ache. And that was one thing that I had struggled with my whole life. It had been these debilitating stomach aches. So the doctors came out to my parents in between the surgery and said, you will not believe this. 
And they said, well, what, what's going on? Well, she has this thing. It's called Meckel's diverticulum. It's really rare. It's in her intestine. And they were all geeking out on all the science stuff. And <laughs> it was just this piece of intestine that was twisted. And they fixed it. And I never had a stomachache since then. But my parents were like, well, what about the cancer? So they said, I think that's going to be OK. But this thing, it's really cool. We don't ever find it. So <laughs> my little frame around that section of time is that God gave me cancer to cure my stomach aches. <laughs> and actually, with the ease of my treatments, I really started to believe that was true. I went through radiation. It was no problem. I lost a little bit of hair right here. I had a little bit of a sunburn feeling on my chest. That was about it. I felt fine. I went back to school. I was in all my activities. I just said, oh, 3 o'clock, got to go to radiation. And then I came back to the dorms. And so at that point, I really thought that was just it. Wow, cancer's not that big of a deal. And so I, but my stomach aches were a big deal. And I was, gl I was really glad those were over. So that was my first experience. And as I went through that, I realized that God was still there in the midst of that, in the midst of those times of wondering what this was all going to entail. And he didn't leave me. And so it was very reassuring. So because it had gone so well, I took a job in Minnesota the next year, working in residence life, and was just very happy to be moving on with my life. That was behind me. Cancer cured the stomach aches. Okay, now on with life. And when I got to Minnesota, I was introduced to a wonderful young man by a, a mutual friend, and we began dating. His name's Matt. He's up here in my little frames. And when we had the chance to start dating and having conversations, he knew through my friend that I had had cancer before, so he asked me about it and how he was being followed up. And I said, actually, I just I go to this doctor just once a year, and he, he's seen some other patients that have had Hodgkin's, so I, I think it's fine. And he said, well, you know, I've had cancer in my family, and usually you're followed a little more closely than that. So I said, okay, just to please you, I'll go see an oncologist and just make sure. And I went into the oncologist a few weeks later. He, get, he did the exam. And he sat down, and he said, your Hodgkin's is recurring. You have cancer again. And I was just really surprised. This wasn't in my plan. This wasn't what I was expecting at all. But I pulled out the positive thinking routine out of my pocket, and Matt and I went off to chemo treatments together. It wasn't going to be as easy this time. I couldn't have radiation a second time, so they needed to do chemo. So we watched these little videos of all the different kinds of, treat, of side effects you could get. And there was this one lady, and she didn't have any side effects. She didn't even lose her hair. And we're like, yeah, we're going to be like that. That's the one we're going for. So we were driving home from the treatment, singing Young Life songs. Everything was great. About 10 minutes away from home, I said, pull over. I need to throw up. Which began my journey of... 12 treatments, and every time I threw up for at least 16 hours straight after the treatments. 
my hair completely fell out. Um, I had mouth sores that were so bad that I couldn't even suck on an ice chip. And my doctors at one point said, you know, we need to switch protocols because this is actually killing you. And so they switched to another kind of chemo. But um, all through it, God had given me this gift of this wonderful man. And I kept telling him, you know, you don't have to stay with me just because I have cancer. And he said, I love you. You just happen to have cancer. So he was a real blessing. He proposed to me when I was bald. <laughs> and so my frame around this time is love can be blind, but it can also be bald. <laughs> and we went on to plan our wedding date. My treatments extended. They crossed all the boundaries of spreading it out. And sure enough, I was going through chemo right through my wedding. So I just wore my wig in the wedding, tucked my little chemo catheter under my wedding lace, and marched down the aisle to meet the, to marry this incredible man, this gift from God. So Matt and I, after that point, thought, you know, Minnesota is a harsh place to live. <laughs> the winters are really, really long. And they tell you on the radio how much time you have between your destination and your car, because you could get frostbite between those two locations. So we're like, mm, West Coast, here we come. And uh, Matt was offered a job at Westmont, working in residence life, and things were looking up. We were ready to move on to this next chapter. We moved back. We were working with students, which was something we both had always wanted to do. And we were really excited about starting a family. Uh, both wanted to have four kids, and we had their names picked out. We said hi to them in our wedding video. We just really had it planned out. And uh, <laughs> when we arrived back at Westmont, we dived into life, and we I followed up with some doctors here at the cancer center and just made sure I wasn't falling into that bad pattern of not following through. And so I made sure I was getting some good treatment and good follow-up. And my blood counts just weren't quite right, but they did little things, like I had B12 shots. I remember asking the church to pray for me that I wouldn't have to have B12 shots anymore. It was just getting really annoying. And we finally got the thumbs up at a certain point that we could go ahead and I could go off the pill and start to try and get pregnant. And we were just thrilled. All of our friends were having babies, and we just thought this was so much fun. So I went off the pill, and the first month, I didn't have a period. I was like, wow, that was fast. So I just went off to my OBGYN with the biggest grin on my face and just couldn't wait to hear the news that I was pregnant. I walked in, I had my test done, and I sat in the doctor's office, and he called me back to his private office. And he sat me down, and he said, Kenan, you're not pregnant. You're going through premature menopause. You, and I said, but I'm so young. And he said, it's probably from all of your treatments. And I said, well, does this ever reverse? Is there any chance that, you know, this we could turn this around? And he said, no. All of your eggs are dead. You won't be having any biological children. So at that moment, 
all my dreams since being a young child and wanting to grow up and create this wonderful, happy family just fell out from underneath of me. And any one of you who has ever struggled with infertility knows what I mean. But the frame that I put around that picture in my life was devastation. And Matt and I really just needed to take some time and try and think through what our lives were going to be about. We didn't know what God was calling us to. We had planned on a big family. We'd planned on working with youth. That was our goal. So we decided, since we worked at a college and we had the whole summer off, that this was time to do something really, really fun. And we packed up our backpacks, and we went to Europe for the summer. And I remember getting ready for the trip and just praying that God would tell us um, what our lives were supposed to be about, whether we were supposed to be missionaries, just whether we were supposed to adopt. We didn't know. But I did know that one place I wanted to visit was Switzerland because my ancestry was from Switzerland. And I thought, that's a great thing. I want to go over there and just see where my ancestors were from. And when we were packing up our our things, we also joined a world peace organization because it was a really cheap way to stay in people's homes. <laughs> and we got, like, the inside scoop. We didn't have to stay at hotels. We stayed in people's homes. All we had to do was have dinner and converse about, you know, politics and world thoughts. And so we did it. So we joined this world peace organization. And I remember getting the directory and going, oh, I'm going to pick something out in Switzerland. So I called my mom, and I said, where are we exactly from in Switzerland? And she said, I don't know. I'll try and research it for you. Well, it never got done. It was pre-internet. So, you know, things took a lot longer then to figure out. And we ended up just picking out of a hat this little place. It was this tiny little town named Wengi, Switzerland. It was about the size of maybe a fourth of Summerland. And it was just tiny. Honestly, in fact, that might have been a big, that might have been big, Fourth of Summerland. So we sat, we got off the bus, and we met this young couple that was there to greet us. And they were just great. They had spent a year in New York. They could speak English fluently. We just had a lot in common. We had a blast with them in this little town, Wangi, Switzerland. And we finished the rest of our trip. We came home. And that fall, my mom wanted to see our pictures from Europe. And she had gotten some things out from storage that she wanted to pass along to me. And she came down the stairs with this, which was, I couldn't believe it. This is my great-grandmother's Bible. Who has their great-grandmother's compact? Somebody over here? Okay, this is my grandmother's Bible, so you know what a treasure this is. It has a little duct tape here from where, but other than that. So I remember this sitting on the table during family holidays, and I was just so grateful. What what a fun thing to get this passed down. My mom was one of three. Her mother was one of eight. My great-grandma was an only child. So this was an only child's Bible. It could have gone down to any number of people from there. So I felt really privileged to have it. And I opened it up, and I discovered that in the front few pages, 
my grandmother had kept this really detailed family history. When people were born, when they died, grandchildren, special events. And I flipped one of the pages, and I slammed it shut. I could not believe it. I could not believe it. I opened it back up. It's like, oh my gosh, it's still there. (laughs) December 22nd, 1889 was the date that my great-great-grandparents were married. Matt and I were married December 22nd, 1989. 100 years to the day. Oh, my goodness. And then I looked below that, and it said that my great-grandparents live in Wangi, Switzerland. The next morning, I opened it up. I was like, is that really real? Oh, my gosh, it's still there. I could not believe it. But this was evidence to me that a man makes his path, but God directs his steps. God had directed our steps to Wangi, Switzerland, at the exact moment that we needed to know that our life and our marriage had purpose, had meaning, and that we were meant to be together, and that we were meant to live the lives that God was having us live. So around this chapter of life, I put God's great faithfulness. That fall, as I continued to go to doctor's appointments, my blood counts just were not coming back the way they should have been after chemo. They kept um, just being a little bit off, a little bit off. And by Christmas time, my doctor called me in and he said, you know, what you have right now is myelodysplasia, which means your, your blood counts just aren't right and they are not ever going to be right. They, the only way to solve this problem is to have a bone marrow transplant. And the other choice is you can ignore it and it will turn into leukemia. And then we'll need to put your leukemia into remission and then you'll have to have a bone marrow transplant. So I didn't really have a choice, but I asked them how that procedure was done and A bone marrow transplant involves donor marrow. And my doctor said, you know, usually a sibling is the best possible chance. It's about 20% chance. Although I had a patient the other day with 10 siblings and no match. I had one sister, my wonderful sister, who um, we grew up completely opposite in every way. Jeannie's laughing because she knows. But there there was no possible way in my mind that we could ever have anything in common, let alone our bone marrow. (laughs) So I said, you know, that National Marrow Bank, that's probably a good idea. And how do we get a bone marrow drive going? And some of you in this room may have given some blood tests to be registered on the National Marrow Bank. And if you have, bless your heart, it's a really easy procedure to give bone marrow, but it's life-saving for the person who gets it. There was Chris Eiler in town during that time, Chris Messier and myself, all looking for a donor. 
And during, in the middle of the drive, I got a call one day, and it was from my doctor. And he said, sit down. I said, okay. And he said, your sister Dana is a perfect match. There's, you can take a five out of six match, but they won't go any lower than that. She was a six out of six match. So off to the bone marrow unit I went with great joy and thankfulness in my heart that yet again God had provided for me in, in amazing ways. He had been planning as we were fighting and pulling each other's hair out as children that we needed each other and that we were a perfect match. And he'd been planning that all those years and uh, just had a new great respect and deep love for my sister's DNA and her very self. <laughs> so as I was leaving to go to the bone marrow unit, a student of, uh, that was in our dorm gave me a letter, and it was really inspiring. It just said, I guess Jesus needs a bed in the bone marrow unit. And as I headed out, I felt like this isn't a waste of my time. This isn't a setback. This is a purposeful event. And I really took that to heart. My sister gave me her marrow. The transplant went very well. She had A-positive blood. I had O-positive blood. And the day I switched over to her blood was the day they knew that it had been a success. So they gave it an A-plus. And I have A-plus blood now. And just a few days before they were going to dismiss me to be sent off and back home, I had a fever. A fever, when you have a bone marrow transplant, is the worst thing you want to have. It means you have an infection. And so I was waiting to be seen. They brought me into the bone marrow unit, and they couldn't find the source of my infection. My fever raged for three weeks, 104, 105. Along with that was the most excruciating pain I can't even describe it. Some people said it might have been like labor pain, but it was for three solid weeks. And there were days when I just rocked on my bed and just begged for morphine or Demerol. And my doctor said, you've had all you can have. You can't have any more. And during that time, I remember people calling me, and I just said, just pray that if I'm supposed to die now, it'll happen quickly because I can't do this much longer. And then a brilliant doctor came up with a great idea. He took out some of my blood. They spun off the white cells, and white cells always go to infection. They radiated them. They put them back into my body, and my colon was glowing like a light bulb. And they said, you don't have any of the right symptoms for a colon infection, but I guess you do have one. So they gave me the right antibiotics, and within two days... I was out, and I had another new lease on life. I was so relieved, and I came home, started packing up my things in the little apartment where I was staying near the hospital, waiting to go home after a 100 days of being there. Two days later, I woke up with a fever, and I just, I was, I didn't know what to do. I was at my end. I just remember standing in the shower and crying and saying, God, I don't know if I can do this. I can only do this if you're with me. I need you to be with me. I need you to show me that you're with me. 
So I went over to the outpatient area and told them I had another infection. They hooked me up with some IVs, and I sat there, and I sat there, and I sat there. And they said, you know, we don't have a bed in the bone marrow unit right now. You'll have to wait a few more hours, a few more hours. And I sat in the outpatient area on a little gurney in the hallway all day long. And about 5 o'clock, they said, we just had a room open up so you can come on over. Well, many of you wonderful people and others as well had sent me cards and banners and um, pinwheels. I couldn't have flowers, anything fun. And to be honest, I just didn't bring that stuff. <laughs> the second time, I was like, you know, I just, I just want to go in this room. I just want to crawl in my bed. I just want to be done. And I got in bed, and I rolled over, and I looked at the wall, and there was a cross on the wall. And City of Hope is not affiliated with any particular faith denomination. So I thought that was odd, and I went to sleep. And the next day, I started asking people, doctors, nurses, housekeeping, anybody, had they ever seen that cross before? No one had. They thought that was really odd. But because I didn't have my cards and my banners, I just had myself in my bed with the cross. I thanked the Lord. He had sent his presence to be there with me, to show me that he would be with me no matter what. And they found the infection quickly this time. It was only three days. And on the third morning, my doctor came in and said, you'll be released soon. And he went out. And then there was a knock on the door. I thought he was coming back in. I said, come in. And a woman peeked around the door and said, oh, I'm so sorry to bother you. I just came to get my cross. And a chill went over my body. I couldn't believe it. I said, come in, come in. And she said, you know, my husband was here. And he was just really struggling. And he asked me to hang this cross on the wall so that he would know that God's presence was with him. And I said, will you tell him that it did the same for me? And thank you very much for forgetting it. (laughs) And I realized that that cross was in that room from the exact moment that I came in to the exact moment when I left. Does God know what we're going through? Yes, he does. So that was another amazing, phenomenal experience. I came home and I thought, okay now, bone marrow transplant, I should be pretty much done. Every cell in my body has either had chemo or radiation. I think I'm finished. So we began to pursue other things. And God blessed us immensely through the next 13 years. We were able to adopt three separate times three separate birth families, three separate miracles. But I don't have time to tell you all the details about those tonight. Maybe another time or we'll go get coffee together. But about two years ago, oh, I almost forgot a promise. My oldest is turning 13 tomorrow. He wants you to know it's his birthday. (laughs) My middle one is nine, Luke, and my youngest is Eliza Grace. And that means joyful one in Hebrew, and she's five. But about two years ago, so 11, 7, and 3, 
Um, I was getting undressed one night, and I brushed against something on my chest. And you know, I'm just not a lumpy person. Every lump I've ever found has been cancer. So I just knew at that moment that I had cancer again. And I laid there and just prayed. And I thought about all the miracles that God had done through the years. And I've shared with you some of the frames that my stories have come in. And at that moment, God started doing a reframing project in my heart. And instead of having all these individual frames, he put it into a big, beautiful collage because he's a beautiful God. And the collage with the frame around it was really simple. It just said, Jesus loves you. And I thought, Jesus loves me. He loves me. He loves me. He loves me and, 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 and. Not he loves me, but he forgot about this part of my life. Or he loves me because everything's going great. But he loves me and I have cancer again for the fourth time. So I called my oncologist the next day. He got me right in. Sure enough, it was breast cancer. And I had surgeries. I had doctor's appointments. But this time, I was going to all of those with the unmistakable fact that God loved me. And I just was excited in a really weird way to go to every appointment and every opportunity that I could tell people who were struggling and who were in pain and who had losses that weren't going to turn around that Jesus loved them. I have one last story I want to tell you, and that is my first day of chemo this last time around. I walked in to my chemo room, and I sat down, and I saw this woman talking with her daughter. She was a middle-aged woman, and her daughter was in her young 20s, and they were chatting back and forth. I didn't recognize the language, though. It was Russian. And we began to talk, and I talked through her daughter, who spoke English and Russian. And I just wanted to know a little bit about her story. And her daughter said that she'd been waiting seven months for a visa to get here to get this treatment. And I said, how many treatments have you had? And she said, this is her first one for breast cancer. She's having tamoxifen for the next 12 weeks, exactly like me. So I sat there thinking, wow, amazing. Thank you, God. Somebody to go through this with. As we talked more, I found out that she knew Jesus. So we had that in common. And I just, my smile just kept growing. I just couldn't believe it. And then as the young woman would go back and forth, I thought, gosh, she keeps leaving the room. And I finally asked her, she said, oh, excuse me, you know, my young son is out in the waiting room and his grandpa is watching him. So I just have to keep going back and forth. He's only two. I realized, oh my goodness, where are my manners? We haven't even exchanged names. I've told all these things. So they told me their names were Vera and Irena. And I said, well, my name is Kenan. And their faces just dropped. And I said, 
Canon. K-E-N. It's kind of funny. It's not spelled phonetically correct. You know, it's, they just couldn't, they looked at each other, they looked at me, they said, Irena said to me, my son out in the waiting room is named Kenan. I've never met another Kenan in my entire life. Not only that, her husband's name was John Kenan, and his father was named Kenan. God had been planning for how many years for me to sit in that chair next to Vera and hear that he loved me, that he knew what my life was about, that my days were numbered by him. God gave me a verse during the beginning of my breast cancer, and it's from Psalm 34. It says, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and be glad. And if you're afflicted in heart tonight, I pray that he will show you his love. And if you don't know him yet, I pray that he will show you his love. And maybe it's time for a reframing project in your life. And if so, I hope it includes just the lavish, amazing love of Jesus that you can put all the pictures of your life into one beautiful frame. I have one more verse that has really stayed by me throughout this, Second Corinthians 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles, even when it doesn't feel like it, are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Thank you. Well, ladies, I hope you were just deeply touched and moved by Kenan's story. And I so wish I could have her on this podcast with me right now to tell you more about her life. But we are so thrilled that Bonnie is here to kind of fill in the rest of the story and and just talk about a woman who left behind such a valuable legacy. Um, So welcome back, Bonnie. Thanks for doing this with me. Thank you. And it is my pleasure. Any opportunity to talk with you is great, but to talk about Kenan is a true and special joy. As you mentioned, Kenan is no longer with us. She was a dear friend to me and to many, many people, and her life left such a deep imprint. To pick up where she left off after Kenan's recovery from breast cancer, She continued to pour herself out for others. 
she loved her husband, Matt, and her three kids fiercely, and they were the joy of her heart. And she continued to minister to those living in the world of cancer treatment, especially children. She had started a nonprofit called Kids Cancer Network. And she would make these fun newsletters with activities for kids that were going through chemo. And, you know, she'd have a bunch of bald heads. And in one episode, she had them color in what they thought their hair was going to look like when it grew back. And it was almost like a highlights magazine, but for kids with cancer. She continued doing that. She was very active volunteering at the hospital. And someone once said that she was truly her best self when she was ministering to those who were sick and downhearted. And she just was a ray of sunshine. After that fourth battle with cancer, she also became more and more vocal about her own journey of faith through cancer. She spoke to different community groups, to hospital staff, Westmont College, to different churches, well, Story Night being one place where she did this, but she just really wanted people to not see her, but to see God, to not see her, but to really see hope through Jesus. She really, that was her main thing. And I think it was evidenced in the introduction. You know, when I talked about those three words about Kenan, she was very quick to say, you know, all those things were from God, not from her. So we could have added a fourth word, humility, and it would have been entirely appropriate. But then it happened again. So almost exactly four years from the date of Kenan's story night, she was diagnosed with her fifth round of cancer. And this time it was metastasized esophageal cancer. And I wanna tell you, she faced it with the same courage and the same grace, and I would even say the same humor as she had the previous four times. The thing about Kenan is that cancer never ruled her and cancer didn't win in the end. She often said that cancer wasn't even the hardest thing in her life, if you can believe that. Her complete trust in God is what won in the end. And her deepest, just as I'm sure is true with other people whose lives end too soon, her deepest devastation and her greatest joy were simultaneous because she did not want to leave this life and her precious family. She loved her three kids so much, and that was the hardest thing for her, to leave them behind. But she longed to be with Jesus, and the two things came together on July 16th, 2014, when she saw Jesus and was welcomed into his presence. Her obituary quoted something a friend had written to her, and it's so true. This friend said, Kenan, you have lived your life holding God's hand, and your other hand held ours. Oh, how we love you. And I think, what a great image of a life well, well lived. So that is pretty much what happened between story night and, and when we lost her on July 16th, 2014. I'd love to ask you to tell us a little bit more about how her friends came around her in those last days. The thing that struck me 
on the day that Kenan died is that she'd never had someone accompanying a physical birth. She didn't have midwives to usher in new life. But as she was dying, she had a group of dear friends around her, rubbing her feet, singing to her, just caring for her and basically midwifing her into her new life with Jesus. And what a beautiful, beautiful thing. I think that again was such a gift for her. I think about when she talked about just that really low time when she was getting uh, infections after her bone marrow transplant and just crawling into bed and seeing a cross on the wall. You know, I think she never, ever missed uh, an opportunity to see God at work loving her. And I think this was one of the last gifts that he gave her. is a team of midwives, so to speak, ushering her into heaven. So it's beautiful. I, I can't think of a, a more beautiful picture than that for those last moments. One of the things that strikes me so much about Kenan, just in listening to her story and, and the little bit that I got to communicate with her uh, before she passed, is how she really didn't let her circumstances or a diagnosis define her. There, there's parts of her story that could easily feel all-consuming, but from what I understand, she really had her core identity in Jesus and nothing else defined her. So as you think back on Kenan, what legacy did she leave behind? Mm. There could be so many answers to that, but I, you know, when I think of Kenan, I often think of a compass. You know, if Jesus is our true north, I often think of Kenan as the little arrow thing. <laughs> and, you know, she just was one of those people that your dial could be spinning all around on your compass and, and she'd always seem to help you get pointed back. And I think it wasn't through telling you you should or teaching or lecture. She just, through her gentleness and her joy and her sense of humor, she was just a completely authentic lover of God. And it was contagious. And you couldn't leave her presence without a smile on your face. I mean, she just was a joyful person. So one of the things about Kenan is that you didn't come away enveloped by her cancer story. And, and that was because of a very unique thing about her that I, I think was a true legacy that she left behind is that she seized any opportunity to point to Christ. And cancer for her was an opportunity. And that's always how she treated it. And it's always how she lived. So it, it's just kind of amazing. I never once saw her feeling sorry for herself. Cancer was an opportunity, a piece of her story that she gave to other people as an opportunity to see Jesus at work. It was amazing. What a tribute. I mean, to model that and to live that out, 
is truly remarkable. And, and I think anyone, even if they never met her, I mean, you can really hear it in her voice. I love listening to her voice in, in the story. I could go back and replay it over and over. There's just so much joy in it. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. I know that a woman like Kenan could have hundreds of people on this podcast talking about her, honoring her, remembering her, and we could record for hours. But in closing, I was hoping, Bonnie, that you would pray for our listeners. For anyone who might be facing grief or a diagnosis or an obstacle or you know any kind of suffering, that she really would be able to take whatever comes her way as an opportunity, just like Kenan did. I'd be happy to and honored. So let's, let's pray together. Mm-hmm. Dear Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you gifted us with Kenan's life. Those of us who knew her personally and those of us who have just gotten to know her a little bit on this recording. And we thank you that for the gift that she gave us of a life that just never flagged and never stopped pointing to you. And God, I I pray for all the listeners here that for those who are going through difficult times, Lord, that your presence would be felt and known, that your comfort would be real. And I pray that your words, your promise, that you will never leave us or forsake us, would ring true for those who are in deep need of those words and those promises. So God, would you comfort those who need comforting, embolden those of us who need uh, courage to speak uh, your love to a hurting world. God, would you go with us as we go forth? Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Bonnie. My pleasure. Thank you for starting the Story Night Ministry. Thank you for having Kenan be a speaker. I imagine the fact that her family has her story is just priceless. And thank you for coming on to record with me for this episode to just honor honor Kenan and talk a little bit about her. Yeah. I appreciate thank it. You. Thank you. And for everybody listening, thank you so much for joining us this week. We hope you come back next week for our next story. Good night, y'all. The Story Night Podcast. A ministry of Calvary Mac. For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com slash women. I think I need to get rid of a little mouse or something. It's in your wastebasket. Yeah, it's moving around. Oh my wastebasket's going like this. <laughs> okay, I probably should go. Yeah, you take care of that. <laughs> I'm scared. Is there somebody to help you with your little creature? I'm just gonna take the whole thing outside and dump my trash on the deck. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. Love you, and love. I will talk to you soon. I hope. Yes, love you too. You have to text me and let me know if everything's okay. <laughs> I will.